you're an employer, you don't know anything about what goes on in a given college. And you look at two transcripts from two different colleges, you have absolutely no idea what student has learned or is capable of or what they even did. You know, and All some, you know is reputation. That's right. All you know is the reputation of the school. So the kid who goes to Harvard and drinks for four years but majors in a nice soft subject and comes out with an A minus average looks great. And the Ohio State kid who worked really, really hard all the time and aced some very tough courses, he's got really no way or she's got no way to explain to a recruiter, really, I'm better than this, you know, layabout from Harvard. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm your host, Duncan Mitch. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Walter Russell Mead, fellow at the Hudson Institute, professor of foreign affairs and humanities at Bard College, and the author of God and Gold, Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World. Our conversation was recorded more than a year ago when we were approaching the 100-year anniversary of the disastrous Versailles Treaty, which ended World War I. Because of that, we started off talking about one of my favorite topics, how the world might be different. In a way, it's a fitting end for this, which will be my last podcast for the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. I'll be doing more podcasting and audio journalism in the future, but just not for the school. Check my Twitter page for an announcement later this year. If you'd like to see any of my other public intellectual style work, I frequently write for Tablet Magazine. And if you'd like to hear any more of my audio journalism, I also did another interview podcast somewhat similar to this called The Life of the Mind, which you can find on iTunes U. In any case, this conversation with Walter Russell Mead was a fun one. Mead offers a fascinating perspective on housing and how, in a great many ways, the lack of affordable housing is one of America's greatest ongoing crises. Walter Russell Mead. First off, I want to talk about American exceptionalism. And it's a term that's very often misunderstood. Most people don't really realize that the origin actually comes from American Marxism trying to explain away the exceptionality, quote unquote, of the American experience, you know, why Americans didn't go for Marxism the way, or socialism just in general, the way Marxist theory was supposed to have predicted that it would because they had the proper amount of proletarian working class and industrialism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a term that most people don't really even understand where it originates but it's also a term that's usually used these days as a bludgeon. And so you talk about, or I should say write about in your work, the uniqueness of Anglo-Saxonism. And you put American thought and the American political experience in this larger process of Anglo-Saxonism. And you say that we have a unique role in the world. So what is that role? First of all, I'd probably say Anglo-Americanism more than Anglo-Saxonism. Fair enough. But uh, maritime, global, nothing supernatural about it in that sense. But you think about American trade, Roughly a third goes across the Atlantic, roughly a third goes across the Pacific, roughly a third goes in the hemisphere. So that America is sort of more global in its thinking than other countries. China is probably of more interest to American foreign policy makers than Mexico under normal circumstances. If things went really bad in Mexico, that would change. But and there's also a kind of a unique geopolitical position in the Western Hemisphere. There really isn't any other country that's in America's league. So there's not really any any country in the world that has quite that mix of circumstances. But along with this, if I'm understanding you correctly, that American thought and the American experience needs to be understood as an extension of the British experience. Like we are the heirs to British political thought and British economic thought. No, that's certainly the largest influence on our thinking. Sure. But at the same time, I feel like people would really resist this notion because we tend to think of ourselves as multicultural and we don't necessarily want to think of ourselves as primarily British. And so this really limits our understanding of ourselves. That's right. I mean, I think, but again, that's not necessarily so new. Alexander Hamilton was very, very careful not to say that he got the idea for the Bank of the United States from the Bank of England. And he had enough trouble with people complaining that he wanted to introduce English ideas into the United States. 
So this conflicted relationship with our relationship with the UK, that's a pretty old element in American thought. Conflicted, but at the same time, it is the dominant element, even if we don't necessarily want to acknowledge it or we're conflicted about it. And certainly we have a lot of problems with British royalty. And we certainly did a number on the Tory experience, kicked all those people out quite swiftly. But at the same time, I mean, almost all of our, at least the dominant strain of political theory and even our basic concepts of rights and things like this derive from British political thinking. I think you have to be a little careful here. Yes, I think particularly in terms of the law, we get just about everything from the common law system of the UK as opposed to other legal systems. Our constitutional thinking is very much in the traditions of English thinking. A lot of our economic thought comes out of the Scottish Enlightenment and people like Adam Smith and our religious experience. Our religious history is more profoundly rooted in the English Reformation than in anything else. On the other hand, if you talk about things like social theory, you very quickly discover we have a large debt to Germany or to it's you know, there are a lot of critical fields in which we clearly get a lot more from the British world than any from any other source. But rarely is it the only source. And then there are also other fields that are important in various ways in American life that we get from other places. I'm glad that our food tradition isn't English. I mean, I meant primarily in terms of political and economic thought. And when we're talking about trade and we're talking about as a grand global influence, I think you would have to trace most of that back to the British sphere. And it seems like you do in your work. I mean, this is the phrase that you use, you know, the Anglo-Saxon sphere, maybe is that what you use? Or is it, or do you use Anglo-Americanism? Every now and then I talk about Anglo-Saxon, but every time I do, I feel like I need to talk my readers down out of the trees. And Anglo-American is bad enough, but I generally prefer that. I don't actually use the word Anglo-Americanism, because that tries to mm -hmm. make something concrete in a way that I don't find helpful. Right. But from this, I guess one of the things I think is interesting about it is people have trouble getting their heads, as you were just saying, you try to talk people out of the trees. They don't necessarily want to think of this as part of the American experience because it's so ingrained in the way we think that we're a multicultural nation which there's truth to on some level, but there's a lot of elements that it's not necessarily true. And so there was a there was a recent article by Jill Lepore of Harvard and The New Yorker and Foreign Affairs that's made some recent news where she basically tries to deny the idea that we have a common heritage. And people have pushed back on her and say, no, most of our common heritage is British. It's not this multiplicitous thing that you're arguing because there really weren't people coming from large amounts of areas until really the late 19th century. The only major waves of immigrants, even by the mid-19th century, are Germans and the Irish. And, well, there and were a few African-Americans who got here earlier. Well, sure, obviously. But in terms of people who were actually citizens at that point and were able to participate in the larger culture and the political system, we're only talking about primarily Germans and the Irish. And even they were resisted a great deal by the know-nothings and others in the mid-19th century. Century. People have a struggle with this notion. And so what does that say about our own culture? And certainly what does it tell us maybe about some of the resistance that we see larger uh, to American foreign policy? You hear terms like the Washington consensus. And sometimes you'll even hear this term Manchesterianism, which is a strange one that I don't totally understand even where they get that, but in reference to this larger idea of Anglo-Americanist political economy. So if it is deriving from this one realm, shouldn't we acknowledge that and then also maybe understand why many cultures around the world are resistant to necessarily just absorbing these ideas? All right. That's, you've asked a nest of questions. Uh, let me see what I can do with it. I have not read Ms. Lepore's book of American history just out that I've sitting ominously on my shelf, but I haven't had time to read it yet, so I can't comment on it. But look, I think, again, I don't disagree with you that in a very substantive way, a lot of what goes on in the United States is related to our heritage, our borrowings from Great Britain. But it's also true that trying to say too much about the nationality of thought can get you into weird places. I mean, Jean-Baptiste Say was French, but he was certainly 
a very influential thinker in the development of what people call the Manchester School 19th century English classical liberal economics. And there were lots of British critics of Manchesterianism, just as the Washington Consensus gets viciously attacked by many American economists. Garibaldi was a tremendously influential figure in pre-Civil War America. In fact, the Union tried to recruit him as a general, in part because Italy was unifying just as the United States was breaking up. So American historians have tended, in my sense, to be isolationists in an odd way. They don't understand that, say, the New England transcendentalists weren't simply sitting in a corner in New England. They were reading German, and they were stunned and overwhelmed by German ideas. A lot of American religious theology comes right out of 19th century German theology. And the influence of well before the Frankfurt School, and so in the influence of German Well, certainly the philosophy. Frankfurt School has been incredibly influential in the last 50 years. Right. I but, mean, there's but no doubt But well that. before that, Hegel was tremendously influential in American intellectual circles in the 19th century. And before Clausewitz was the kind of guiding star of American military thing, it was Jomini. So... I agree that you can't understand the United States without understanding the degree to which we are connected to Great Britain, but I would really be very careful. It's just very, very easy to press that thought a bit too far, I think. Well, I'm not pressing it in a way that I'm celebrating it. I'm more just saying that I think that it's something that is a truism that we hesitate to admit in part because of the revolution, but also this great commitment that we have, which in some respects is wonderful and laudatory to multiculturalism. But I guess maybe it's worth questioning how truly multicultural we are. Well, what? But Britain was multicultural too. You know, when I, I was 11 years old and I got dragged over to England for a year with my parents, I sat in an English school and what did we study? We studied Latin and French. So I was sitting preparing to read Virgil as schoolboys had been doing in Italy and Spain for a thousand years. So what is this Britishness? You see what I'm trying to say? It's, it's oh, just... sure. I think British culture was incredibly intellectual and interested in a multifaceted education. I would never make the argument that British culture is one-dimensional or that American culture is one-dimensional, but more that that is the dominant strain. I think it's important, I guess, to think about things in terms of dominant strains. It's interesting because I wasn't anticipating this kind of <laughs> pushback from you. I thought you were going to go with it and run. So, well, no, it's just I think one of the reasons that people sometimes fight it is because we're not careful enough in how we try to talk about it and, and in a sense, make it easier for people to see just how much importance one should attach to it. So it's, you know. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. But let me give you a more concrete example, I guess. And part of this, I think, would be interesting is because here we are in 2019 and we're 100 years, soon to be 100 years out from the armistice of the First World War. And I think you would probably agree with me that the First World War is the moment, truly, not the Second World War, where Anglo-Americanism, for lack of a better word, really has its key victory and starts on the path to becoming the dominant, at least power from a political economy perspective at that moment. You know, that is the moment where things could have gone dramatically different. If England does not jump in and get involved in that war, Germany certainly would have won. Well, actually, and, I, would, I would say it's 1689. How uh, was it 1689? It's, it's, the, it's the glorious revolution in the 1688, uh, glorious revolution in the UK when William III begins to push the UK, well, it was uh, still, I guess, England, into the war against France. And it was that's what the people call the Second Hundred Years' War between England and France that ends at Waterloo. That's really the era, I think, when the English-speaking world achieved its kind of world position. That World War One and World War II were both efforts to defend an existing system against people that were trying to overturn it, as was the Cold War. It's interesting. I think going back to the First World War for a moment, though, I mean, you're not going to challenge the idea that had Germany won that war, that they probably would have ended up being the dominant power in the 20th century. And I wouldn't change. But I yeah, would also but, say if Napoleon had won, it would have been the same, or Louis XIV. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, and obviously you can do this with any kind of, you know, what ifs in history. And But I'd also just say, look, between 1815 and 1914, huh. that's, you know, that's when Canada is settled. It's when Australia is settled. In a sense, it's when the Industrial Revolution sweeps around the world, when English banks, when cable communication. The fact that all of this happens when essentially London is the, the capital of world finance and, and the geopolitical great power. It's interesting, though. In your work, you did characterize the First World War as a war for, quote, and just this is your own wording, oppression versus freedom. And I feel like that's a little bit one-dimensional, right? I mean, I think a lot of times people look at that war and see it as black and white, but the First World War is actually quite gray. Kaiser Wilhelm was actually kind of a bad guy, vicious anti-Semite, hated democracy, a true militarist. He was not a good person. Well, I mean, I'm not saying he was, but at the same time, somebody like Neil Ferguson would argue that had Germany won the war, they actually would have established something like the European Union. So there's a, more than a little, because this is a lot of what my own work is about, is about Germanophobia that comes from the British that then the Americans basically adopt wholesale, which leads to the anti-German hysteria in the United States. Oh, that terrible anti-German hysteria of the 1930s, huh? No, of the 1910s, where no, three-fourths of the United States outlawed the German language. Oh, thank goodness. Um, look, I think it's World War One was probably people can make an argument that we didn't uh, need to intervene and so on. But if you just simply look at it as power politics, we couldn't permit Germany to be the dominant power in Europe, I think. And we couldn't, in a sense, couldn't really permit Britain to lose the war. I think Neil Ferguson is a really interesting historian. Some of his books are really good. I think counterfactual history is almost never very interesting simply because you can then have counter-counter history and counter-counter-counter history. There's a lot of truth to that, but you don't see any of this as a tiny bit overblown. There's a lot of desire to equate what happens later in Germany as if the Wilhelmian state was the same as the right. Hitler state, which I is think really if, not right. Fair. But I think if you read more about Wilhelm II, while you're right, he was he was not Hitler. He was really nasty, and his eldest son was a very enthusiastic Nazi. And Wilhelm had every hope that Hitler would hand Germany back to him and had really no objections to Hitler. So, um, you know, I, you know the, I, of course, the, you know, they're very different uh, historical periods. But there really was something, I think, that was off in Germany, even in the Wilhelmine period. And many Germans at the time saw that. Well, sure. But— a lot of the narratives that come out where they condemn it are coming from a very hardline German left perspective where a lot of people would say that their critiques are more of fascismus clue, right? Where it's this idea of bludgeoning people and calling them fascist just for political gain. That anybody who opposes what the German left, their perspective is a fascist, fascismus being fascism, obviously, clue being club, to beat them with the fascist club. So yes, there's that perspective from the right. German left, but... But again, I think if you think that the German left are the only people who thought that the Wilhelmine state was problematic, I think you've missed a lot of German intellectual history. Well, obviously, there's plenty on the British side, too. And it isn't as if Britain and the United States at this time weren't building empires. And how were their empires necessarily more or less different than the one that Germany was actually late to building? I'm a little bit surprised that you don't see English... Uh, power as a, as a key issue in the in the 17th and, and 18th, and especially 18th and 19th centuries. I've written a good deal about the problems mm. of, of that power system and uh, have, you know, I don't think anybody would accuse me of idealizing it. I'm trying to say that there's limits to it, that it has become the dominant mind frame of our political economy worldwide. I think that you would agree with this. There's so many different varieties within it in the sense that, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was was an exponent of this, John Maynard Keynes, but then so was so was Adam Smith. This tradition is a very, very broad tradition. Oh, and absolutely. it was different sure. in 1810 than it was in 1910 than it, than it was in 2010. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm just not quite sure what you're talking about. 
I'm not trying to challenge the, the thread of your work. I'm actually trying to pivot off of it. And what I'm trying to say is that if it has become the dominant political economy mind frame for the world, regardless of when we chart it, I think that that's certainly the case today in 2019, and it happened in many stages, that the world could have been different. And what is the unique role that Anglo-American, Anglo-Saxonism, British political thought has in the world? And how might it have been different or how could it be different? And what are the advantages of it being this way? What is unique about the Anglo-American role in the world? And what is the advantage of it if over other mind frames? I'm not going to get into the comparatives because I, I, I just – to say that I I lose my footing there, but you know, in terms of what what are its strengths, I think it may be more useful to talk about why does it keep winning. What are the pragmatic advantages that have enabled it to uh, succeed? The power race of the last three hundred years has really been depended on which countries were best able to harness the power of capitalism without having their political systems blown up by it. And it seems to me Anglo-American political systems, and you'd certainly include Canada, Australia, and New Zealand in this mix, have had the ability to encounter enormous historical turmoil and change. And you, you have these economic revolutions that drive social upheavals, that destroy old power structures and bring new ones out. These countries have managed to do that with relative political stability that you know has given them over a, a long period of time some significant advantages. At the same time, they had an advantage that once you've built a global power system, it's very hard to dislodge it. And there was a period during the Napoleonic Wars when the British and their allies had been defeated yet again by Napoleon. The British prime minister says to the cabinet, let's roll up the map of Europe, gentlemen. We won't be needing it for another 10 years. But because the British still had their trade with the Americas, with India, and so on and so forth, they were able to actually continue to fight until, in the end, Napoleon was defeated. So once you've established this global system, it's very hard for anybody to break it unless they break it in several places at once, and that's hard to well, do. Yeah, absolutely. But going along with that, I mean, it's interesting because you say in your work that the American system is the best at developing and harnessing the power of capitalism. It, it appears could, to be, yeah. yeah. And it, but it seems that China is certainly coming up behind them quite quickly. I mean, isn't it possible that China could be developing and harnessing the power of capitalism? I mean, it's not a liberal form of capitalism, but it certainly is a form of capitalism. I think it's certainly possible. One of the interesting things about the future is that we really can't predict it. But if you look at the past, and that's really about all we can do, there would have been a time when you said Louis XIV has actually, with his illiberal form of capitalism, which he had, he's defeating the English. He's growing faster. He has greater resources. You certainly could have said this of Prussian capitalism, state capitalism in the late 19th century. The Russians actually, before the revolution in the years leading up to World War I, people were saying the Russian model is working better. I'm old enough to remember when people said the Japanese model is working better. So there's been – it's possible that the Chinese have figured out something that other people didn't figure out or maybe just at the sheer scale of it. But I think we have to be a little bit cautious there just because so many other people have essentially tried the same thing, to build a form of capitalism that captures the dynamism of capitalist society but doesn't have the liberal element, the political liberalism. And what has happened repeatedly is that this works for a while and then it stops working. Any kind of global dominance, any kind of well, global, just in terms of dominance of the political economy of development. or development. Yeah, so that there are a number of years when the Soviet Union was growing faster than the United States. Sure. And actually, during the 1930s, people said, ah, oh, this Anglo-American system is completely outmoded. Germany, Italy, the Soviet Union are all doing better. So it was the old 19th century discarded model versus these dynamic 20th century scientific models. 
but it just didn't last. I think there probably is a connection between the political liberalism and the ability of a society to continue to self-correct. So do you think that's what will allow this to last longer? I mean, where do you stand on Francis Fukuyama's The End of History? That is often misrepresented. People tend to portray his idea as if it were a lot more one-dimensional and dogmatic than it actually is. Do you think that this is going to last infinitely longer than any other paradigms that have come before? I'm afraid my crystal ball just doesn't work as well as other people's. I must admit to an inability to predict the future. Fair enough. But we seem to be struggling in certain respects. There's quite a bit of revolt that's going on, not just in the United States. Obviously, the Trump election is a direct democratic, people use the word populist, but might be better to use the word just democratic with a small d, uprising. And obviously, you have many others that are going on throughout the rest of the Western liberal world, the yellow vests in France, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, which has rapidly grown. You know, I mean, one of the fastest growing parties. Actually, it's been shrinking lately, but I think it's in the last down. In the last years. So. Yeah. Um, but I mean, regardless, it is sort of a, a trend at minimum. You know, it seems to be quite fretful about. Couldn't this bring about the end of the Anglo-American or even just the broader liberal order? Anything is possible. But so far, what I see is in the U.S., when people are unhappy about the way things are going, they have the ability to organize and vote about it and pull things in a different direction. I mean, that that looks to me like one of the elements that over the centuries has helped make the system stable is its capacity to change, its responsiveness to unhappiness. Sure. And then this is part of the liberal order in general, is that responsiveness. Yeah. That liberal responsiveness eventually could break down. Well, anything could happen. I think the analogy is a little bit that You know, you've got some animals like a crab or a snake. They do very well, but then they have to shed their skin or their shell. And it's very traumatic to go through change while mammals sort of are continually growing their skins. And in that way, I think there's something about liberal societies. They seem able to continue to adjust. Russian history is much more like a crab that has to shed its shell every while and then goes through a period of real weakness and instability and grows a new shell. Are we going through that now? Are these various populist uprisings going on throughout the liberal world? I think, again, people voting for a different party or a different political direction at the ballot box is very, very different from having a revolution that overthrows an old order and an old system. So I would actually see these populist movements as elements that both that liberal society is stressed because people are clearly unhappy, but also that liberal institutions remain capable of responding to popular feeling. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Mensch, and today I'm speaking with Walter Russell Mead, professor at Bard College. I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting secl.asu.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Let's continue our conversation with Walter Russell Mead. There's quite a bit of anxiety that these things could grow out of control. It seems like at the core, and I'm quoting from your own work, that a lot of the populist sentiment is in response to 
a rejection of political correctness, a rejection of elite values. And that's not just in the United States. That would be in France and Germany and other places where people don't think that elites represent their interests anymore. How is that different from the Jacksonian populism of the 1820s and 30s? I think I, well, I would argue that it's quite similar, if not exactly the same. Again, right, so would I. And so that would be the argument that this is that liberal system continuing to work. People are unhappy with elites. They don't seethe passively beneath them and then erupt in all-powering rage and send them to the guillotine. They go to the ballot box and they vote. But at some point, they could decide that the parties don't represent us anymore and we want to, at minimum, as has happened in other countries other than the United States, where they have started new parties, and those new parties could supplant the old major parties and it seems certainly within the realm of possibility. You said that the alternative for Deutschland is shrinking recently. But if it's not them, it could be somebody else. It certainly seems within the realm of possibility that the social democrats in Germany could fade away and no longer be relevant. Or similar things could happen in France with, say, the Socialist Party or whoever else, that we could be going through a massive usurpation of the old political order with something new. We may be entering a new stage of liberalism, in part because people just don't have the confidence and that elites represent their interests anymore. Well, again, I think if countries are able to adjust to changing circumstances and changing sentiments among the population without having incredibly disruptive revolutions, that would be a sign of the strength of liberal society rather than the weakness. So I think what you have where you have a country like China where they feel like they have to crack down, they have to – they can't allow university professors to say what they think. They have to censor images of Winnie the Pooh because some people think it looks like Xi Jinping and, and this sort of thing. There's a society that has a kind of brittle quality to it. But I think it's, it's kind of business as usual in American history anyway. We've had several party systems since the revolution. The Federalists, you don't hear a lot about the Federalists or the Whigs anymore. It's pretty clear that since the 1960s, the nature of both the Republican and Democratic parties has changed dramatically in the United States. We'll probably continue to Well, I mean, isn't it possible going along with that idea that we could be entering? So, you know, just for our listeners, uh, the way political scientists think of the party systems, they think of the first party system, which is before the Whigs, where you had quite a few different parties. The federal, as you mentioned, that's the first party system. And then once it's, if I'm getting this correct uh, or getting it wrong, please correct me. And then the second party system, is when it's primarily the Democrats and the Whigs, even though it's still dominated mainly by two parties. And then when that system gets disrupted by the Free Soilers and the American Party, which is more often known as the Know-Nothings, and then the Republican Party, which then grows out of that and it becomes just the Democrats and the Republicans, that's the third party system. Couldn't we be moving towards a fourth party system where maybe the Democrats and the Republicans actually fall off and we get new parties? I mean, certainly— It's possible. It doesn't look like it happens. It's going to happen if only because it's, it's so easy to capture a party. Party leaders don't have any real power or very little power so that the parties are actually quite permeable to change. You, you can imagine it, you know, one or more parties splitting up, one or more parties coming up. Yeah, anything could happen. But at the same time, I think what you're pointing to is an interesting idea that, especially if you look at the Democrats having gotten rid of the superdelegates and the Republicans quite a while ago got rid of the superdelegates, which is part of what allowed Trump to take place, that actually the system, even the third party system where it's just the Democrats and the Republicans is actually functioning fairly well where people are feeling like their voices are getting represented by the fact that Sanders didn't run outside of the Democratic Party, the fact that Trump didn't run outside the Democratic Party. So even maybe here, the system is working fairly well. Yeah, and I think it's also the case that it's when you have a first-past-the-post system, it's very hard to get third, fourth, and fifth parties because you, you need to have offices if you want to be a party. It's very nice if you elect the mayor, then there are lots of people who do business with the city that benefit. So a party can get support and you can get people who can afford to work full time for the party because they have jobs because of the party's victories and so on. So a party is not just a group of people who have a set of ideas in common. It's a group of people who are able to work together between elections and other things. 
So in the U.S., you need a regional base to be a successful party. And most of our parties that have gotten anywhere have had that regional security. Probably the group in America that could most easily form a successful third party right now would probably be African Americans who could control cities, congressional districts. There's political machines. And then as a minority party, they could trade trade their vote for concessions and so on and so forth. But in they a could sense, endorse major. They could run as a minor party and then endorse major parties when it when it when it fits their interests. There are lots of things they could do, but in fact, they get all those benefits essentially as a caucus within the Democratic Party. So, you know, in that sense, this very elastic, permeable system that we have, it survives not because it suppresses opposition, but because it coalesces with opposition. Mm-hmm. I want to pivot towards another aspect of your work. It seems to me like a lot of the populist, and I really don't necessarily like this word, but that's the word people use, uprising that's going on across the Western world relates to a, a failure in middle-class economic development. It's not just in the United States where you're having this growing divide between the rich and poor and the middle class is being squeezed in all kinds of different ways. It's happening in other countries also. What is the best way to sustain and develop the middle class? That is a very good question. I myself think that a couple of things we need to think about. One is housing, actually. If you think about how did the American middle class prosper really since World War II, it was this development first in the 50s and 60s of the suburbs with the interstate highway systems connecting them and you build these new suburbs, you get a lot of jobs, create building the subdivisions, installing the infrastructure, a lot of jobs. Financial sector makes a lot of loans to a lot of homeowners, to a lot of car owners, to municipalities, and it kind of works. And each generation borrows the money to build the housing that it needs. And then when it retires, it's got the equity. That worked really well. System started to had a kind of a, a serious crisis in the 70s, the combination of high oil prices, which made gasoline uh, driving hard for people, but also high interest rates made mortgages unaffordable. And the inflation rate knocked out the savings and loan sector, the financial industry that provided a lot of that. But then in the 80s, Reagan was able to bring inflation down. And interest rates fell and oil prices fell. So you had to sort of mourning in America and they built a new ring of suburbs. And I think now with the millennial generation helping the millennial generation and its successors build homes, this creates a lot of jobs. It creates opportunities at every level of the financial industry, and it gives people some equity. Well, it's interesting that you point to this because it seems to me like that is one of the things that's given the least amount of attention, at least in the last four or five, six years after the last housing crisis. So actually, I guess it'd be 10 years. But millennials are probably more in debt, and not just millennials, anybody younger than the millennials and maybe even a little bit older, too than any previous generation, and housing is more expensive than it's ever been. And there really isn't this big push, and it doesn't seem like it's coming from either side, the right or the left, to make this massive new reconstruction of housing, whether it's suburban or urban. There are a lot of things going on. One is that by the time you built the first ring of suburbs in the 50s and 60s, and then the second ring of suburbs in the 80s and 90s, the new suburbs are getting pretty far out there. And so if you're going to have affordable housing where a 20-something or early 30-something family can have some green space for their kids, you're talking about very, very long commutes. And that's a problem. It's not just a problem in terms of gas, you know, which it is, but it's a problem of really dad is going to spend two hours a day getting to and from work. Well, they've even done studies that the more time you spend in commute, you're the more depressed you are. And it doesn't matter where you're living. I'm surprised you need a study for that. (laughs) So there are lots of ways of dealing with that. One of my favorite is really we should figure out ways to make telework work so that more people could work from home. If you could not everybody can work from home all the time, and some people can't work from home ever. You have to be there. But some of the studies I've seen show that like 50% of jobs in the U.S. could be done remotely at least some of the time. 
if people could simply stay home two or three days a week, it doesn't have to be five. Well, I think some people would take one or two. Exactly. It would be a major right. improvement. And so, but this would also, you see, would make that edge city housing a lot more sustainable for people. But why not just build vertically rather than horizontally? Well, there's no reason why you can't, but it's still the case, and this is true among millennials, people like grass. Mm. They like their kids to be out. They like, that's what Americans, not all, but it's still what most Americans think they want. And why not let them have what they want? But why can't we get creative? And there was this famous Canadian architect, Moshi Saudi, I think is his name, who tried to design something where it was both like vertical, but people had their tiny, I wouldn't say yards, but they had these own little gardens in each unit. People li- if people level, like I mean, they, it, are- fine. But intellectuals have actually not a very good track record at developing alternatives to the single family house. Mm-hmm. You know, people keep preferring them. There would be reasons why you would – but the idea of owning a little bit of land and there's the independence of not having to be in a condo association or whatever it could be. But I think if we think about a future of self-driving cars coming in and of telework, actually in the U.S. we have the ability – for the next generation or two to really have a, quote, American lifestyle. Why not incorporate public transit as part of that, too? Did I say a word against it? No, I didn't. And my guess is the job of public transit gets a lot harder when the alternative is Uber without a driver. For one thing, it really drops, why would I own a car? I don't need to own a car if every time I need one, I just like do an Uber and there's a driverless car. So you change the relationship. Well, that's certainly where Uber wants to build, right? And, and Google and everybody else. That's what, they're, that's what they're trying. I'm not invested in the transit systems of the future, but I think it is going to be cheaper for a lot of people and much more convenient than most forms of public transportation. Now, you can imagine public transportation in there where it's in a sense of Uber pool, driverless Uber pool, Mm -hmm. et cetera, and subsidized transportation for people that have special needs and, you know, need help getting in and out or whatever it may be. There are lots of ways you can build on this. But it does look to me as actually as a society in the kind of housing and work and transit world, we've got pretty much what we need to get to where the next couple of generations can have the American dream, as people used to think of it from a housing point of view. Now, there are other problems for middle-class existence, and the two biggest are probably education and healthcare. And those are areas where we still produce these things in kind of a guild system. So, you know, as a member of the professor guild, it's actually very nice if you're a fully paid up member of the guild, but in terms of healthcare, what do you mean? Well, no, and just a member of the guild, you get paid pretty well, and you don't have to work that hard. I'm sure there are a lot of my colleagues now that want to kill me for letting the secret out, but professors don't work as hard as ditch diggers on the whole. Once you're pursuing tenure, it certainly seems <laughs> it seems a lot worse. Right. Well, it's hard. People. You know, you, uh, you you put it and those tenure check jobs are disappearing. Right. Well, right. We're, they're, they're a lot. Of, but here's the thing: that in general, and ASU is actually a place where people are trying to think their way around this box. The cost of getting a college education or graduate education is growing much faster than the cost of inflation. When I was at Yale, it's like four thousand dollars a year. I mean, it was insanely cheap compared to what when it is. When did you though. graduate? 76. So double that or triple it even for the regular rate of inflation. What is Yale? I, mean, I don't know, probably 60, 60 70,000. And people are still cheating and lying to try to get in. The customers are lined up around the door. So the cost of getting the education has to come down. And how would you bring it down? There are a lot of things I would look at. One is I think we got to get away from the snob premium for schooling. Right now, we had that scandal, all these parents trying to get their kids into, quote, name schools. If you're an employer, you don't know anything about what goes on in a given college. And you look at two transcripts from two different colleges, you have absolutely no idea what student has learned or is capable of or what they even did. You know, and All some, you know is reputation. That's, that's right. All you know is the reputation of the school. 
So the kid who goes to Harvard and drinks for four years but majors in a nice soft subject and comes out with an A minus average looks great. And the Ohio State kid who worked really, really hard all the time and aced some very tough courses, he's got really no way or she's got no way to explain to a recruiter, really, I'm better than this, you know, layabout from our how do we how do we fix that? This it seems like I mean, obviously you have a handful of elite quote public ivies, but most of the really elite schools are private. Right. Look, there will always be positional goods in education, you know, the value of scarcity and so on. So Nothing will ever completely get away with it, but you could bring it down. You could give the kid, the hardworking kid from Ohio State or for that matter from Arizona State, a chance to compete by, for example, having some kind of exit test from college, the equivalent of SATs when you get out. Mm. Or you could even have a kind of a national exam There's a national engineering exam and a national English literature exam or whatever. And if you pass that test, Mm -hmm. you've got a college. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, but isn't there a problem with bubble tests in general? We're the only country that uses them. It's kind of strange. We can argue about what what the test (laughs) should be. But my point is there needs to be a way that kids who don't come from privileged name schools can demonstrate their achievement. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting idea. Maybe it reflects, though, poorly just on the whole system in general. Somebody like the Canadian system, for instance. Canada doesn't have the kind of hierarchy that you're describing. I mean, I guess University of Toronto is probably the most prestigious school in the country, but most of them are all considered of pretty close worth. You don't have this kind of major discrepancy. But we can't go back in a time machine and develop a Canadian educational system starting in 1800. We've pretty well got a stick with what we've got and try to reform and improve it. You can't, I mean, I suppose you could try to take Harvard's endowment away. And as a Yale man, I would find that an interesting thing to try. But we've got what we've got and people have the expectations. I just think it would be really nice if kids had a way to say, look, fine, I went to a school nobody's ever heard of, but look what I But look can what I do. achieved. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. well, it's interesting that you say this, though, because the SAT and the ACT and even the GRE and these things are supposed to be the way of equalizing things out, but I think they only create more hierarchy. It's all about taking a test. The idea that the GRE has anything to do with graduate school is obscene. At least the SAT, anyway, is a pretty good predictor of success in college. And that's what I hear, but I don't claim to be a big expert yeah, it's not, on it. I'm not an expert on it either. I mean, the last time I heard, I heard that actually the most effective thing was your grades in high school. I don't know, because again, there are high schools in high schools, I must say. There, there definitely are, but at the same time, that's the biggest thing in terms of habits, like the daily habits. I know plenty of students, you know, I've worked for an honors college for three years who were good at these kinds of tests, but they were horrible students because they didn't, they didn't have the habits. They knew how to take those well, kinds again, of tests. Well, again, I think achievement tests would be interesting to see if you could develop achievement tests that in some way were meaningful. And here's the other thing. If you could pass, let's say, 12 achievement tests in different subject areas, maybe you should get a BA whether you've spent a <laughs> five minutes on a campus or not. So like a CLEP test, but for a degree. Instead of like clepping out of a subject, right. you could actually clep, clep, out of into, college. clep into an entire degree. Yeah. I don't think colleges would like that too no, much. No, but I think maybe people would. People should have, as long as college degrees are some form of certification is deemed necessary mm-hmm. for people to go out there and get middle-class jobs, we should be thinking about how do we make it while without sacrificing the quality of the knowledge. Because I don't know about everybody else, but I would like for my dentist to know what dentists are supposed to know. I just want to tease that. We don't have too much more time. But what would you think, though, of changing the whole education system in a certain way? And not necessarily a college. We we talked about how we can't really change the private nature of the hierarchy, as, as you alluded to earlier. But we could change the high school system. We could move towards something that's much different than what we currently have. If you look at most European countries, they start filtering students into one of three types of schools. One is more of something, I would say, akin to like a community college where it's more skill-based. Another, I think, is arts-based, and another is actually sort of similar to what we would consider a liberal education. They don't have a one-size-fits-all high school system where we still, at least for most students, probably do. What about that? In American high school education, I think it's less that we don't track well is that we don't do anything well. So in (laughs) fact— 
except in a handful of excellent schools. The liberal arts track is terrible. The vocational track is terrible. We don't really offer kids very much. Kids should be probably spending fewer years of their lives in school, and it should be maybe a bit more concentrated what they're getting. But again, it's one thing if you're France, it's one thing to try to reorganize your educational system. You have a long history of it being a national thing, and you've got a lot of political capital that people have invested in it over the years. In the U.S., it is a state thing. And also, the U.S. has very, very different subcultures in different parts of the country. And New England thinks one way about education, and Alabama thinks another way. And Right, Cal- so you, you couldn't do this federally. You could, you could it would all be a lot harder. I really think we should be trying to shift from an educational system that measures time served to one that measures stuff learned. I should be encouraging people to finish school early. That would save everyone money. I think, frankly, a lot of people could complete a 12th grade educational level. A very substantial percentage of the population could do that in 10 or 8 years of school. Well, it'd also be an interesting way to positively encourage students because plenty of people want to spend the least amount of time possible. And if you could prove that you learned enough material to graduate from high school when you were 14, you might really benefit some people. And then if they wanted to move on to the next step at 14, then they might learn that much more that much earlier. And who knows, we might produce more geniuses. We might free up some people to do more things with their lives. Am I getting you correct? Or Well, why not give it a shot? That would be one of the advantages of a federal system is that we could give it a shot. But I think finally, it's just worth noting that, again, letting people do things their own way. And maybe you don't need to get a college degree. A lot of people might might actually need to go to college and have somebody with them, but a lot of people might not. And that's fine. It would it'd actually be great. It would save money. It would save time. It. But the other big thing I think that our educational system misses and that people in the future will think we were insane as a society about is that we don't integrate work into the early lives of kids. It's I'm not talking about working in a Dickensian coal mine or something, but actually... Hands-on experience of any kind. Working, you know, just yeah. working. I teach college students, and you get kids that are 22 years old and have never really worked. At all. And yeah, they, they're, you know, this sense of fear that overcomes them as they contemplate getting to the end of the college experience. They're going to have to jump off into this cliff in a world they know nothing about. Well, it's just this oddity of separating these two things as if work and education, these are two separate spheres where one is out there in the air and the other is on the ground. So, you know, maybe there are ways of having older kids teaching younger kids. I mean, there are lots of kinds of things we should be thinking about. But yes, regardless of the party system or any of this other stuff, we're moving into a fundamentally new social era. The information revolution is as big a deal as the industrial revolution. And institutions like education that were shaped by the industrial revolution will have to be completely rethought for what lies ahead. Well, I really appreciate this. And we're trying to be involved in that rethinking. And we welcome your viewpoints. And we'll see where it goes. So thank you for your time today. And I hope the speech goes fantastically well. I'm sure that it will. Enjoy the weather. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.